there was no room in the Perspective Inn yesterday for the Homeless Strategy and Children's Champions Report. No wise men, but Tinwald stars David Ashford, Claire Barber and Kerry Sharp are with us to give some good news for the homeless and for vulnerable children, as well as encouragement for campaigners seeking new laws to protect puppies and kittens. David Ashford chairs the Housing and Communities Board and he brought the board's homelessness strategy to Tinwald. The strategy seems quite strong on gathering data. How does that help people who are homeless? Well, as I said in the debate, Phil, it's very important we don't get obsessed with data. Data is important because we need to understand what the problems are out there and how widespread the problem is. But it's not the holy grail. The holy grail is actually, as you say, the practical steps taken to support people out there. So, for instance, emergency provision um, and ensuring that there is a place for people to go, that they're able to have a roof over their heads um, of, of a night time, that they're not homeless, but also prevention. That was something I majored on in the debate because the key to this is in trying to ensure that we deal with people who are on the cusp of homelessness as well, not just waiting for them to get into that situation but being preventative and that was the fifth key focus area of the strategy. There were five key focus areas, that's the main one and as I said the results of this strategy won't be judged around what data we can collect. I made it very clear in that debate, nobody's ever turned around and said my life has improved because they had such a wonderful data set what improves people's lives is the physical actions are being taken out there to support them um, and that is what this strategy will need to be judged on so over the course of the next few years then if if i happened to be made homeless if uh, annie threw me out for whatever reason um what would uh, what would i see by way of change that's going to come forward so there's some change that's already actually in place. So, for instance, if, there were, if for instance, today you suddenly went home and found you'd been chucked out, um, there is the adult social care team in DHSC that could be contacted at any time. The number's out there. In fact, I tested it this morning. If you put homeless Isle of Man in, it's the very first search result that comes up, which is a telephone number you can gauge with, and they will actually look to provide you emergency accommodation, um, overnight accommodation to ensure that you're not stuck on the streets or you've got nowhere to go what also will be being developed is what's termed um, basically a single entry point pathway because there are people who are homeless who have multiple other problems as well um, such as those engaged with addiction services and so on and it's about joining all that up to make sure that where people need information where they need help and support they're not being sent off in multiple different directions they're at a time of crisis in their life as it is and the last thing you need to hear as we all know when we engage with services to be told oh you need to contact such and such then such and such then someone else it's about having that one point of contact so that is the things that people will see differently and those changes are already underway and and that seems such an obvious thing doesn't it Um, but it seems so so difficult for government to be able to to deal with with that, that that perhaps a single individual person with a series of problems needs to be dealt with as a single individual person rather than dealt with as a series of problems with a series of different people um, addressing each of the individual problems. Why do you think it is, or has at least been, so difficult for government to get this right? Well, I I mean, from my personal point of view, it goes back to something I've always said about the silo mentality within government, um, because there's different teams in different areas, in different departments. And what the Housing Communities Board is doing, and we said this in an interview we did when I took on the role about how did I view it, My role on the Housing Communities Board is about bringing all those disparate areas of government together 
um, and ensuring that they work together to actually deliver things, that they're not just going off and operating in their own areas, um, but also engaging with the third sector, because we always talk about government. There's also an awful lot of third sector organisations out there that do a very valuable job and provide services in a way that government can't. So we're very delighted as part of the homelessness strategy to have the Salvation Army, Praxis Care and Housing Matters all involved. They've been dealing with people out there at the coalface, so to speak, of homelessness. They've they've been engaging with people, finding them homes for a long time. So having them on board with the development of the strategy has been absolutely crucial. Um, and it does come down to one of these things where government can't do it all themselves. We do need that third sector intervention as well. And we've been working with them and they've got buy-in into this strategy. And of course, the charitable sector, the third sector, tends to do these things considerably cheaper than, than government as well. They do, um, but and equally, I, you know, I've I've always been a big believer that I mean, there's there's the old quote, um, and I can't for the life of me remember who said it now, but um, it was it was a U.S. politician anyway who said, "If government is the answer, I dread to think what the question was." Um, and you, you know, government can't do everything, and I think we need to recognise that. And in fact, even sometimes when government can do things, it's better placed elsewhere. There's other organisations that understand things more, or have better experience in certain areas, and we all exceptionally lucky on this island with the third sector organisations we have. Considering the size of our population, it never ceases to amaze me how many organisations there are out there and we should be utilising the skills and talents in order to help people. And finally, uh, on this one anyway, you you have been accused of uh, being um, or following in the footsteps of Aniron Bevan and uh, Clement Attlee. Uh, does this indicate a political swing on your behalf? <laughs> uh, that was Mr. Thomas um, who made that, made that joke. I, I don't think um, I've ever before been accused of uh, being in the same group as Clement Attlee and Ernest Bevan. Um, but I'll take. I think he meant it as a compliment. So we'll, I'll take any compliments that, that Mr. Thomas wants to offer. Okay, so moving on then, you also asked, well, you asked several questions, but one particular one uh, you asked of the health minister in relation to primary care. What's your concern there? So primary care at scale, um, which is a phrase people will probably have heard about, came about from the Jonathan Michael Review. And the fundamental underlying principle is that it is much better to deliver health care at a local level rather than at a central level. So decentralising so that you get more help out in the community, including at GPs, provision of dentistry services, community nursing, etc., keeping people in their homes longer. Now, a side effect of that is that it also is more cost effective in generally when you look at structures that have done it, um, of the decentralisation, and it's more efficient as well. Now, my concern is this has been dragging on since the Jonathan Michael review, which is five years ago next year. I don't know where that time's gone, but it's five years ago. And particularly over the last sort of 18 months, it seems to have ground to a halt. The Healthcare Transformation Annual Report stated that it had been considered by the Manx Care Board about bringing forward funding to actually bring it in but because of the financial position they didn't feel they were in a position to do so so my concern I expressed to the minister was are we going to end up in that old vicious circle that we were in for decades where basically um, you you say you can't do something because you can't fund it but if you don't do it you don't actually make the efficiencies and the cost savings that would allow you to fund it in the first place. 
were you convinced by the minister's answers? Do you think he's on top of this particular problem? So the minister spoke about stabilisation of primary care services, and it is important to recognise that primary care services have had a few shocks to the system and the minister laid out a couple in terms of the pharmacy um, provision around the island around um, particular doctors surgeries and so on um, so it is important there's some stabilization but the point I was making to the minister is I hope we're not going to be waiting for some kind of perfect utopia in terms of stabilization because with a health service there is always going to be shocks to the system and my worry is that this stabilization as it's been described will go on and on and on and we'll never actually get to the end. Um, So what I want to see from the Minister over the next 12 months in the Department is them pushing this forward. And if finance is the root cause as well, looking at what they can do to release some funding, because sometimes you do have to spend the money in order to make the savings longer term. Kerry Sharp, MLC, is the children's champion and she brought her reports to Tinwald for debate. Were Coleman's amendments to her recommendations helpful? What happened is the government brought a number of um, amendments. In general, um, I was pleased to see that they were in agreement with my recommendations, and so they were kind of they were fairly minor amendments. Um, however, uh, there were a couple of areas where I just thought I am not going to back down on this. Um, uh, for example, uh, in the second uh, recommendation. Um, I'd recommended that uh, children who are looked after should be able to stay in residential care um, until age 26. Now, I don't literally mean, you know, stay in the same house from when they're like age eight, um, but just that they should be able to stay within the the care of their corporate parent until 26. Um, So they've taken out the 26. um, And I do object to that because um, if you think about it, uh, the average age to leave home in Britain now is 25. Um, the uh, age of emotional maturity we now know is 25. Uh, and that's for people who haven't had adverse childhood experiences. Um, the age of leaving aftercare in Scotland is 26. Uh, the age of leaving aftercare in terms of uh, UK councils providing support to care leavers is 25. So I felt that 26 was about right. Now, so so in, in relation to that particular point then, did, did you succeed? Um, well, it was one of those interesting situations where uh, we had a, a disagreement amongst the branches. So uh, uh, there will be a combined vote at the next sitting of Timwald. So the show was over mm. for yesterday. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I'm glad I'm talking to you now because I, I've, you know, got the opportunity to actually uh, e- explain a bit of the thinking, you know, behind why I'm so keen on um, trying to persuade members to vote for 26. Um, I mean, I think that it, it, it would give, it would take the, 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 the stress out of, that there's this bottleneck of stress for uh, young people who are in care. You know, they get to 15 and they're told, right, next year uh, you might be moving out of your residential home you might be moving into semi-independent living you might be moving into a bed sit on your own um you know and and how how on earth you know no parent would put that kind of stress on their own child so why are we putting it on on our corporate children and i mean in the the uh the the council of ministers amendment um they're talking about uh 
children looked after in residential care should have the option of staying in residential care based on identified need. And I'm just imagining, you know, sort of very well-meaning um, officers sort of going off and, 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 and if this is passed and, and sort of saying, right, you know, what's the identified need? You can imagine people are going to get to like... Uh, 16 or 17 and they'll say you know uh, uh uh have you had suicidal thoughts over the last three months have you attended cams have you done this have you done that oh no sorry you can't stay you don't meet the criteria and actually people are not widgets so um you know we should be asking um our young people do you feel ready to leave residential care and if they say no i don't then like any parent, you know, we would say, okay, well, um, you know, we, we've got the means um, to support you, you know, into early adulthood. So why don't we do that? And then we would then have the time to to work with these young people um, and to, to, um, to work on things like, you know, basic domestic skills, because when they're very young and they're in residential care, um, they're not allowed to cook and they're not allowed to do the washing and they're not allowed to do these things like you would at home and, and as a parent you would slowly introduce your child to these things but no that doesn't help when they're in happen when they're in residential care it's like right now we're going to prepare you for leaving care and they go into semi-independent living or uh, independent living and they don't know how to cook they don't know how to look after themselves um they're living off benefits they've got to pay for their own food um, and one of the uh, care workers told me recently that um, uh, most of them, you know, go to the corner shop and buy a pot noodle. You know, this is not good enough. In relation to the report, then, I mean, presumably you share this in advance with the relevant officers of various departments uh, concerned. Um, did you not get any feedback prior to submitting uh, this, uh, this motion? Well, interestingly, um, and if you look at my report, you'll see how many different people I've spoken to over the last year of being Children's Champion. You know, I've spoken to people in the constabulary, in mental health services, in safeguarding. Um, we've got a Children's Improvement Board, which was set up as a result of my report and the offset report. I've spoken to the chair there, you know. People say, 26, what a good idea. Um, uh, it's not like uh, uh, professionals are saying, oh, we don't want the age setting at 26. It would be so much more work. We'd have to do this. We'd have to do that. They would welcome with open arms uh, a motion from Tim Ward saying that, you know, our will is that children should be uh, supported under 26. I mean, the argument was also raised, well, we don't want to keep children in a bubble. We don't want to, um, you know, mollycoddle young people. But it, it, it wouldn't be keeping them in a bubble. It would actually be having time to work with them and to give them another chance because often they're not at school because of various, you know, um, uh, crises that they're going through. Um, it would give longer to work with them and get them through some GCSEs, you know, at a bit of a later time, and 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 get them into apprenticeships, and you know, it, it would it would just take the stress out of the whole thing. Finally, the deaf minister Claire Barber had a busy tenwold. You had three questions to answer. The first one was in relation to 
uh, animal breeding le- uh, legislation. Um, are you concerned that the legislation is so far out of date now? I mean, I think I'd always prefer to have up-to-date legislation, um, and that's one of the reasons why we're going to embed it into the secondary legislation to make it a little bit easier, a little bit quicker to move with the times. Um, so, you know, I acknowledge it's out of date. I'd prefer it was up-to-date. I don't think there are significant concerns, but that's not to say that there aren't some concerns, and we are aware that there are concerns around the breeding of uh, domestic animals. And indeed, this has been an ongoing issue um, where people are concerned uh, that, there could be loopholes in our legislation that would allow uh, puppy farms to engage in in fairly cruel uh, practices. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's exactly the reason why we want to have that up-to-date, watertight legislation so that it can't happen. Um, And that's not to say that it is happening, um, but, you know, I would certainly be reassured by having uh, legislation that's fit for purpose, which is the work that we're doing currently. And when can we expect that uh, the updated, upgraded legislation to be in place? So as I gave in the answer, there's a number of pieces of legislation that will happen in early 2024. Um, Some of that we're consulting on already. So it's specifically around the codes of welfare for um, domestic animals. And we've got cats, dogs, horses, um, rabbits, I think is is one of the first ones that we're we're putting out. Um, And then the next piece will be around some of those other uh, areas that we want to look at. And that will include the breeding breeding of domestic animals that process will take a a length of time because we haven't started the consultation yet so we would look at the end of 2024 in reality for that to be in place um, and and therefore we can work towards that the uh, next question that you had to answer was from john wallenberg and this was in relation to importation of red meat Um, i was interested to hear you say that undoubtedly a ban on red meat imports would be beneficial to the red meat sector. Why why do you think that? I think in a very simplistic terms, if we banned red meat imports, we would be able to provide the local market with what we're producing locally. But as I say, that is in simplistic terms, which is why I said I think it's part of a bigger puzzle. The reality is at the minute, without understanding what we're importing and knowing whether we've got the right cuts in volume, we're not far adrift in terms of imports and exports. But that's presuming that people want to eat all the parts of the animal. And we know that in reality, a lot of people would prefer to eat the prime cuts. And that means we need to make sure that we're using the whole of the beast when we're processing it. You know, from a sustainable perspective, that's exactly where we need to be. So, you know, I think it it sounds simplistically like the right thing to do but actually for me it's far more about us understanding our imports understanding our exports making sure that we've got a consistent supply because I think it'd be fair to say that were we to ban red meat imports um, if we even could because of course there's a a wider conversation there um, and then not be able to supply the local market I can imagine people may be somewhat frustrated. And certainly prior to the loss of the red meat derogation uh, back in 2005, I think it was, there was this uh, ban on importation or or, uh, restriction on importation and license was provided to import the cuts that were were needed. So surely that that wouldn't be that difficult to to introduce uh, were it possible um, internationally to do it. 
Yeah, and I suppose that's the, the, the piece around making sure we're working in the spirit of the agreements that have been set up, making sure we're not um, giving a, an unfair advantage to the local market. But, you know, I would say that the, the local market actually has an inbuilt in, uh, advantage because, frankly, our meat is considerably better. In my opinion, we know where it's come from. It's got low-carbon uh, food miles. It tastes better, and we're supporting local farmers in our local countryside. And, frankly, if that doesn't make you feel good on a Sunday dinner when you're sitting down with a good leg of Manx lamb, I don't know what does and of course now that tesco has cornered the market for vast majority at least of food sales on the island has government has your department any concerns about the local food sector that perhaps tesco will play ball for a short time and then uh, uh, just decide to go with the the, the cheap imports well we're certainly working with with tesco on that obviously as isle of man meets um we are supplying to Tesco's and have been for a while and we have a strong relationship with Tesco's they've shown a commitment to that product um, so I would hope that that wasn't the case I know there are other suppliers who are in Tesco's who've had really positive relationships um, so I would hope that would be what the future looks like but we're also you know attuned to the challenges producers can face when they tend on the island to have a number of uh, people they supply to and it can be quite a small number so when something does change that can cause destabilization quite quickly and that's where we need to make sure as government that we're providing the support where necessary and then finally you had a question to answer in relation to rights pit north mrs kane who asked the question pointed out that in possibly a few decades time rights pit north could be exposed to the sea is government concerned about this? So one of the conditions around the planning application uh, that was, was put in is specifically around monitoring of coastal erosion. And I think that's really important anyway. Um, and we would expect any operator in that situation to be monitoring that. Uh, and then from a regulator's point of view, obviously, we would be looking to make sure there wasn't any additional leachate um, and making sure that it's it's not damaging the environment um, there's a number of tests that we're doing and I listed some of those but obviously they're found in detail in the reports that can be accessed online um, for me the biggest picture actually is that we should be moving away from the dilute and disperse landfill um, to properly engineered sites um, but the reality is that as, it, as the legacy that we have is of those landfill sites we need to make sure that there's a transition period to allow those new sites to be engineered and to be able to be functioning um, that will take time and as much as I'm sure we'd all like to be able to just say we stop today it just isn't as simple as that. So it's right that we work with the operators, in this case DOI, um, to make sure that the ultimate position is one that looks to the future for the Isle of Man residents. Mr Thomas was, was keen to open up the question, pressing the boundaries that uh, uh, the Tinwald Standing Orders uh, um, have in relation to questions, but he was keen to open up into other um, areas, other landfill sites, and there are many o o across the whole island. Your department's uh, tasked with making sure that none of these sites are leaking uh, things into the environment that shouldn't be being leaked into the environment, isn't it? Yeah, and the Environmental Protection Unit, as you say, cover all of those sites, you know, and I understand that, you know, in Tim Ward, I've been there myself, where you try and push things a little bit. Um, the reality is our EPU are absolutely focused on all these sites. You know, there's a big piece of work, and that's why also, as Mr Thomas rightly pointed out, there's a funding element that comes with this in order to change those sites or to close existing sites and build new engineered sites. There is a cost that comes with that, but I think it's clear from the island plan that a priority of this government is making sure that we are monitoring 
we are managing any uh, discharges into our air, into our sea, onto our land um, in an appropriate way. But also that needs to be managed as we, as I say, deal with legacy challenges and look to the future. You seem to be suggesting there that maybe there isn't enough funding for your department to do its job properly. I mean, interestingly, I don't think it's for our department to do the job properly. I think the challenge here will be for DOI as the provider of the facilities to build new facilities. And I think that's something that's come out through the um, oral evidence sessions that have been taken by the Environment and Infrastructure uh, Committee. And I look forward to their report, which I believe will be coming quite soon on that topic, which I think absolutely will be for DOI and DEFA to both look at the elements that are related relating to DOI as operator and, of course, some private operators who also are in that space and DEFA as regulator. Some interesting topics to round off our Tinwald coverage for 2023. Agenda is taking a couple of weeks off over Christmas, but we'll be back in the new year asking their questions and hopefully getting some sensible answers. Don't forget this programme is available as a podcast on Manx Radio's website. For now, though, I'm Phil Gorn. Goodamayo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>